It used to be hard to find the exact auto parts you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now when you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately. Hey everyone, this is the Almost World Podcast. Bringing to you mind-blowing interviews with guests from all over the world. So settle down, relax, and enjoy the show. Oh yeah, by the way, if you like the podcast, please support Elmo's World Podcast on Patreon. Your support is what helps the podcast improve more and more. Welcome to Elmo's World Podcast. This is Elmo Dor Jr., your host. And it's awesome to talk to our friend, um, Sharif Abu Laith. Can you introduce yourself, bro? Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me on. Uh, obviously, uh, you mentioned my name, Sharif Abu Laith. Uh, I'm a Muslim. I live in the UK. I uh, engage in various topics and discussions and learning and reading, including topics related to, you know, uh, proof of the existence of the Creator. I've had various debates with various professors uh, in and around the UK. I mean, the last debate I did was actually uh, at a university in Australia. So that was a few couple of years ago. So I was invited there. So, you know, and I've also done a course about how Muslims try to justify their beliefs in Islam. Uh, so yeah, that's, you know a bit about me. I obviously I work and cool. And um, because you mentioned like um, you have debates over the uh, arguments for God. Um, I, I assume you would be a theist. Yes, I'm a theist. Obviously, as a Muslim, we all believe in uh, one God, one Creator. Uh, in Arabic, obviously, we use the term Allah. Yeah, I thought the name of God. Uh, but one thing that needs to be understood as well from a from an Islamic tradition, theistic tradition, is that we don't have a you know, we don't have an anthropomorphic uh, conceptualization of God. So we don't uh, think of God as a human being or as a superman uh, or somebody with a white hair, uh, big beard, living on a cloud or anything like that. So we believe in a necessary being, a creator who's singular uh, who had intentionality in terms of creating the universe that we inhabit in and everything that exists within that universe. And so, um, did you, uh, I want to know, like, were you born uh, or raised as a Muslim or did you convert um, from a certain age? Yeah, no, so I was born a Muslim, so my family originally are from India, so I was born and brought up in the UK. So most of my, well, not most, all of my schooling, all of my education was done in the UK, I was born here, and majority of my friends 
you know, majority of people at my school are all non-Muslim. They're all white, ethnically white, English, uh, you know, people. So when I was growing up in junior school and then later on in high school and going off to college, uh, majority of the people that we intera- I interacted with were generally non-Muslims. And so in that environment, even though you may be a Muslim, you do get questioned about certain values and beliefs and practices that you hold on to. And so, you know, it makes a person self-reflect as to, okay, why do I hold these beliefs? Am I just holding these beliefs because my parents hold them, uh, because of the color of my skin, or is it because I have some level of justification, a rational justification for holding these beliefs? And, you know, so you, everybody goes, I think a lot of people go through questions when they're younger and they're growing up, why do I believe in what I believe in? Is there a God? Is there a purpose in life? And so naturally, I went through these types of questions as well. And from that, you know, uh, I became convinced, you know, that the, you know, the faith that I grew up in had strong rational justifications for it. I've tested those beliefs out. So I've discussed with various non-Muslims of different persuasions, particularly with the atheists uh, of various, uh, you know, uh, levels uh, and You know, it seems like, uh, you know, the arguments that were presented to me, the ideas and the the evidences that, you know, were presented to me seem to hold quite strongly uh, and robustly, at least in my opinion. And um, in terms of, for example, um, how you justify your belief in God, what started you there or what path uh, did you take in order to... Uh, truly uh, prove to yourself that there is a God. So I think what's really interesting is at a young age, I was taught, uh, you know, by other Muslims that for a Muslim to have sound belief, that they must use rational evidence to justify it. So, you know, as I was growing up, I was told that it is important to have rational justification for belief in Islam. And in fact, there's a long heritage in, in the Islamic tradition, there's a famous scholar. He's, uh, he was from, I think, the 10th or the 11th century. His na- name was Imam Jawaini. And Imam Jawaini, in his book, he wrote a book called Al Irshad, which means the guide. And it was, a, it was a book about the evidences for the beliefs of Islam. And he said in the introduction, he said that the first obligation placed upon any Muslim, he's talking about Muslim, but extended to, to human beings generally, is to prove that there is. A creator is to prove their belief system basically that's the first obligation placed upon uh, a person and so you know there is always been and that's why you know I think uh, nowadays probably your listeners and other people have heard uh, you know this term the Kalam cosmological argument I don't know if you heard of that Elmer. yeah I have. yeah yeah so you know uh, so the term Kalam is an Arabic term uh, so these were, you know, historically articulated by Muslims in order to justify the Islamic conception of the creator of God. Uh, and so they used various arguments for this. So it's, it's always been within the Islamic heritage, even within the Quran itself, that tells us to look at the heavens and the earth and contemplate upon life and contemplate upon the limited dependent things that exist around us, that there must be you know, contemplate these things and you'll see the signs for the existence of the creator. I use your mind in a deep and lightened fashion and you can come to the conclusion that a creator exists. So it's within the Islamic tradition that we do this. So obviously I grew up and obviously growing up around non-Muslims with different faiths, different backgrounds, 
you know, and being told that you need to justify your belief through rationality. Then I thought, you know, it's naturally interesting to go and study this, learn this. What do Muslims say? What do non-Muslims say? What do atheists say? In order to appreciate, you know, the positions that I hold. Okay. So, uh, other than the Kalam cosmological argument, are there other arguments that help you uh, prove your, to yourself that there is a God? Well, Kalam cosmological argument is a very broad argument. Yeah. So there's many different aspects within it. So I know. A lot of people have heard the argument, whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Now, that, that's okay as an argument, but uh, there are, you know, stronger arguments, or even within that argument, you have to add certain premises to the point, uh, to the argument, in order to come to that conclusion of a creator. So, you know, for example, um, the best way to look at this is maybe think about a person who has no memory and he finds himself on an island. Yeah, and you know when he looks around to himself, he's going to ask certain questions. He's going to ask, "How did I get here?" Because he's got no memory, so he doesn't know how he got here. He's going to ask himself the question, "What's going to happen to me?" You know, and why am I here? And in the same way, we as human beings, you know, we come from non-existence into existence, and suddenly we find ourselves around in this world. And so these natural questions of, "How did I get here?" What's going to happen to me after I die? And what's the purpose to this life? And natural questions that all human beings should be asking. Normally what happens is we just simply fit within the society that we live in. So whatever the society says around us, we sort of just simply accept it in one way or another, rather than really challenge our beliefs. And that's what we need to start to do, to challenge those beliefs by going back to the first principle questions. And so if we go back to that island and that person that, looking around and he's trying to work out how he got here then you know he's going to come to certain conclusions for example he's going to come across uh, the fact that there's things around him that they have a certain size a certain shape that they depend upon other things like maybe he comes across a tree and he knows that the tree requires sunlight uh, or oxygen for it to grow uh, a carbon dioxide for it to grow uh, that you know animals they require food that they are a certain size a certain shape so everything that he sees around them around him is either limited and also dependent these two things i don't know if you're following the point <laughs> yeah yeah so he's going to come across these things so he's going to ask himself the question okay this limited thing like for example let's take the tree is this limited thing the tree uh you know uh what is dependent upon sunlight? Okay, so what about the sun? And he looks at the sun and he sees that the sun has a certain size, a certain shape, a certain amount of energy. It's also limited and it's also dependent upon something as well. So it's dependent upon the fusion of hydrogen. So hydrogen atoms come together, forming larger elements. I don't know if you've done chemistry, Elmo. Yeah, okay, so you know, isn't it? When you form bonds, you release energy. When you break bonds, you need energy. So so, you know, you create sun and light. And so when you look at the gas, like the, the hydrogen that exists in order to form the fuel, then you see that the hydrogen in stars or in the sun is also limited. There's only a certain amount of it. And it also requires other things for its existence. So maybe another star exploded to create this gas and thus distribute it across the universe that then coalesces under the force of gravity and then you know, we look at those stars and we say, well, they came from other nebulas. And then we look at the nebulas and we start saying that they are limited and they're also dependent. They require something else. And maybe that requires, 
you know, uh, some other, you know, false or limited things. And so what you find is that everything that we point to within the universe is limited, has a certain size and quantifiability, either a size or a energy or a, you know, a mass, either something that's quantifiable, and also it's dependent, yeah? So now we've got a situation that in order for, you know, a tree to exist, it needs the sun, the sunlight needs the sun, needs fusion hydrogen, needs nebulas, needs supernovas, those need other nebulas, may need a big bang, big bang, people may posit the idea of a, you know, quantum singularity, quantum singularity, some people may talk about super string theory, some people may then go further than that and start talking about other things. So what, what, everything that they point to is a limited being, and a limited being is also dependent. And so therefore you have this possibility, does this chain of limited dependent beings go back forever, or does it require uh, an unlimited independent being whom we would call God? So those are the possibilities. Maybe some people might even say, oh, well, it could come from nothing. Or maybe some people might turn around and say, ah, it could be uh, cyclical. You know, we have it. We live in a cycle. So, so I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Well, um, mm -hmm. okay. Uh, you know, I have had like a lot of conversations with uh, atheist Christians uh, or Muslims about their evidence for for God, but uh, it seems to me that the criteria depends on the every person. You know. Some require a higher degree of uh, sufficiency of evidence in order to conclude that there is a God. But I think with a big problem that people face is more on theodicy, where the how they how they can explain the problem of evil and uh, an all-loving or omnibenevolent benevolent God allowing it, you know. So how do you, how would you explain that? Well, I would say firstly is that we have to first. Uh, we have to look at this from two, from what, there's two angles of looking at this question, isn't it? First angle is how can you have an all-powerful, all-good God and allow evil in the world to exist? And really that's looking from a top-down. That's trying to understand this from the existence of the Creator and then trying to see whether you can reconcile any contradictions with regards to that. Because they say, oh, it's a contradiction because if evil exists, it means either God is not all-good or he's not all-powerful. Now, from that's one way. The second way is to say, okay, look, before we even get to the question about the problem of evil, can we come to the conclusion that a necessary being exists? Yeah? And so then we look at from our level going up. Do you see what I mean? So we're looking from what we sense around us of the universe, and we look at the implication of the observed event. Yeah? So that's why I said that when we, you know, that person on the island and he's seen the, 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 the trees and he's seen the animals and he's seen water and sand and he's noticing that they're all limited, finite, dependent beings or things, then he's going to say, okay, can limited, finite, dependent things depend upon another thing, depend upon another thing, depend upon another thing? Or does it have to be, you know, either they call it initiation, a first cause, or an independent necessary being? And then once you've answered that question, then the next question about, you know, the problem of evil becomes a question that's relatively easy to answer, I would say. Yeah, because what we don't do, see, the problem with this question about God is all good, all powerful, is it just assumes two attributes, God is all good and all powerful. 
from an Islamic paradigm, we also say that God is all is all merciful, is all good, is all powerful, and he's all wise as well. So maybe we don't see the wisdom of a particular event that took place, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's incorrect. But all of this presupposes that we're starting from the premise that God exists. And we need to come to that conclusion in the first place. That's what I, what I would say. So I think the question then for us is, how, is it correct to say that a limited thing is dependent? Yeah, if we categorize a limited thing as being necessarily dependent. And if that is the case, then can limited uh, things that are dependent depend upon something else ad infinitum in an infinite chain? Or does it require a necessary being? Yeah, a being that is independent and therefore unlimited beyond the concept of limitation, beyond the concept of quantification. Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts on that specific question is, Elmo. Can you have an infinite regress? I don't know if you come across that idea, probably have. Yeah, I, I have. Like um I guess that we would have to look at or be able to um measure or quantify the the dimensions and reality before uh, the singularity of the Big Bang, or I don't know, but in terms of inf- of of what what it could be, be that the con- where contingency uh, leads towards, it could it might be uh, ad infinitum, uh, or it could be lead to God. Uh, we cannot tr- really prove that right now. So, in a way, um, I we I would still be on the fence on that in terms of of where 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 it ends you know but yeah but if you could like answer uh, what do you think is the reconciliation for the problem of evil with god so we would say two things one on the or two things firstly we would say that evil presupposes that good and evil exist as abstract objective objects uh, so, you know, if we if we take an event, an event is neither good nor evil. It, it only becomes good and evil based upon how we judge it. And we judge events based upon the outcomes and based upon whether those outcomes accord to our what we see as our purpose in life. Yeah. So if I see that my outcome, if I see my purpose of life is to maximize happiness for me as an individual, then a good action would be that which achieves maximization of happiness. As a Muslim, we see the uh, purpose of life is to worship our Creator. So the maximization of uh, the, the, you know, what is morally good would therefore be that which accords with our purpose, which is whether we're worshiping God or not. And so events such as, uh, you know, tsunamis and these types of things, you know, things which are outside of our control, we don't characterize them as good or evil. We just characterize them as events. The good or the evil is how human beings respond to them. Yeah? So if we respond to it according to our views for the purpose of life, and it's in accordance to that outcome, then we we will call it good. I'm saying human beings do this irrespective of whether the Muslim or non-Muslim. It's whether how we see our purpose, our viewpoint on life, and how we respond to a particular event, if it's a, in, not in accordance to our purpose, we call it evil. If it's re- if we respond to it in accordance to our purpose, then we call it good. Yeah. So that's how, so this idea that all good, all powerful, why does evil exist? That presupposes evil as an abstract, objective entity. And I'm saying that 
you know, nobody can really argue that. Yeah, so even from an atheistic point of view or materialistic point of view, you can only argue for events. So that's the first one. Second one is, okay, you say, okay, but you believe in God and you believe God is all good. So I say, well, yes. And we also believe that God is all wise as well. And sometimes there may be good reasons for, you know, events that we don't like and we and some people might categorize as evil to exist. So, you know, it's like, for example, a person has, cancer treatment and in the cancer treatment they may have they may lose their hair and they at that moment might characterize that as evil but we know that the, the treatment is there to save and protect his life so because he's only got a limited framework at the moment where he loses his hair he's calling it evil but in the long term it's actually good yeah so sometimes so we from our framework we can only see things in a very limited way Whereas obviously the creator understands past, present and future and understands all things, you know, in terms of human action, events within the universe, etc. And so there may be good reasons for evil to exist, but we cannot work it out. Yeah. So we just because we just got a limited perspective on things. And the third argument you, you, I would use is the argument that in order for evil to exist, if evil did not exist, it would preclude the possibility of free will. And so we believe that human beings have free will. And in order to have free will, you need to choose or be able to choose to perform evil uh, and, uh, you know, act according to that in order for you to be characterized as uh, a free will, free willing agent within within society, uh, within the world. Yeah. Don't know if that's convincing to you or... Well, I, I find uh, those um, relatively... Uh, satisfactory but the problem I would see is that uh, would those arguments fit within the th Islamic theology the, the which you hold now these, these are these arguments actually originally stem from the Islamic theology the arguments addressing the problem of evil I mean the problem of evil is really only it's a it's a problem when you assume good and bad or good and evil are abstract objective entities that exist or not abstract, but exist within the world. That's the problem. So when you start to say, okay, we look at an action and we can say it is good. We look at an event and we can say it's evil. Yeah. Like, for example, if we turn around and we talk about an earthquake, people, you know, people won't like earthquakes. But can we call an earthquake evil? Yeah. So if there was no human beings, like before human beings existed on Earth, and there was earthquakes and meteorites, would we call that evil? We wouldn't call it evil, we just call these events. So that's why we're saying that good and evil are relational to human beings, how human beings see them. And how human beings see things as good and evil or morality is based upon their viewpoint on life. And so as a Muslim, we don't look at good and evil uh, from the perspective of maximizing benefit and minimizing harm. We look at good and evil about how we as human beings respond you know, in terms of what the Creator, what God expects us to do. And that's a very empowering concept because there's a famous uh, statement from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and he said, strange is the ways of the believer, that when something good happens to him, he's thankful to God. And when something bad or difficult happens to him, he remains patient and God rewards him. Yeah? So no matter what situation that person is, so long as he responds in the right way, yeah, then he's able to be, you know, elevated and, you know, 
become good. And also, you need to also appreciate as well, because, you know, how can a person be characterized by courage if he doesn't face fear? Yeah? You can't really call somebody he's courageous if he doesn't face a difficulty or fear. You can't characterize somebody as patient if he doesn't have to be patient about something. Yeah? Or persevering if he doesn't have to, you know, overcome a difficulty. Yeah? So these moral characteristics that we strive towards are in response to events and therefore that allows human beings to grow. And um, how about free will? Um, I would think that um, that would, how could you reconcile that as well with, with Islamic theology? Yeah, so, in, in, so I think the problem of free will, uh, not the problem, but you know, obviously within the Islamic perspective and framework, we look at free will from the point of view that God gave us free will, that this is something that has a extra material uh, you know, reality that was given to human beings. And why do we say it's extra material? Because from a naturalistic or materialistic perspective, free will doesn't exist. Because free will is just the product of the brain, and the brain is the product of uh, physical non-conscious uh, atoms. And these physical non-conscious atoms operate on the level of non-conscious physical laws. And so the choices that people make from a physicalist or materialist perspective are not real choices. They were predetermined or they were determined at the point of the Big Bang. So when the Big Bang set in motion all the laws of nature, all the matter that exists, then all of your choices would have been predetermined. It's like when you knock off, knock one domino over and a series of dominoes falls over. It's, you know, it's fine. You know, it's just going to fall over in a particular pattern. In the same way, our choices would be like that. So that's is counterintuitive to our own experience. So in my experience, and I'm sure your experience, Elmo, we feel like we have agency. We feel like we made a choice to go on this podcast, or the people that are listening to it have a choice to listen to the podcast. Now, there may be external influences, but ultimately we feel we have agency within our actions. Now, if we cannot explain agency yeah, from the material realm, yeah, or from materialism, from the universe, then if we believe that we have agency, then the agency must be outside of the material realm, meaning that it must be given to us. And that allows us to have a uh, philosophical or rational consistency in how we act. Because many atheists, as you know, Elmo, will consider themselves as hard determinists. Yeah, And, and as hard determinists, you know, they believe that, you know, we don't really have choices. But then you ask them, do you live your life like that? And they say, no. I go, do you believe that a society should live in that way, where people commit criminal acts? And you say, well, they didn't have any choice over it, so they, why should they have... So therefore, they have no moral agency. Yeah, They have no ability to make moral judgments. And they say, no, they shouldn't act like that. So there's, a, there's an inconsistency yeah, with this, this idea that, from a materialistic perspective, you deny free will, but in the practical day-to-day -day matters of life, you believe in free will. You act that free will exists because intuitively you accept it exists. You make choices. Yeah. So, you know, there's a problem on that level. And therefore, the solution to that problem, to be consistent, is the belief that there is something outside of matter that gave us something called free will. Yeah. And therefore, we allowed us to make Okay. 
So it seems that um, you're uh, taking the free will from a dualistic point of view, I guess. Well, if you want to use the word dualism, matter, you know, spirit, uh, you know, term, you know, the brain, you know, is more than just, or the mind is more than just material. That's fine. But I think the issue is it's not really necessarily about the me mechanism of how free will comes about. Yeah, because maybe we'll know, maybe we won't know. But the issue is, is about the fact that materialism cannot explain. We've got two options to explain free will. Either it's explained by materialism or it's explained by something that's immaterial. If we can say that materialism cannot account for uh, free will, then therefore it must be an immaterial uh, you know, uh, reality or a necessary being that's beyond the limitations of the universe, that's beyond limit limitations and dependency, that gave us free will. Yeah, so we're we're pushed into that direction. So it's so we're now, you know, uh, consistent consistent in our world. We believe that we have free will. We believe that the agency of free will came to us outside of the universe, outside the material realm, and we can act in that way as well. So we're not acting contrary to our beliefs as some atheists do, who are hard determinists. Okay, yeah, you know, like uh, Sharif, you, I, I think that you're very in, uh, intelligent, but um, and. I want to know, like, because you're also a Muslim, um, what do, you, how, what is your view on evolution? So, from an Islamic perspective, we don't really address evolution because evolution is a scientific discussion. Yeah, so it's within the realms of the scientific discourse, where Muslims would have problems in terms of accepting the, the, the scientific discussion is in the context of human evolution. Did humans evolve from lower life forms, in particular, uh, what we believe is the first human being, uh, who is Adam, or peace be upon him, who is also a prophet. So we say, so from an Islamic point of view, we say no, Adam did not have any prior human uh, or prior demi-human or semi-human parents, yeah, but rather he was created, and that this form of creation was a miraculous act. So it's something that is not explained within the material realm. So we're not looking for a materialistic explanation for Adam al-Islam, for Adam to be created. Yeah, so that's how we see it. Now, some people might say, oh, hold on, but evolution is absolute fact. But as we know, science doesn't deal with facts. It deals with, uh, you know, it's an inductive process, which means that it leads to probable conclusions. And so even the most established, you know, theories in science, like Newtonian uh, theory around gravity, yeah, it was considered absolutely established until Einstein came up with a different theory about gravity. And so, you know, those, because there's an inductive process, inductive process basically means that you sense a certain number of events, and based upon the sensation of a limited number, you generalize to the overall, yeah, to the, to the whole. And so there could be a problem in your generalization. So in the same way, when we talk about a scientific theory like evolution or even human evolution, nobody can say it's definitive. Now for us as Muslims, we say, okay, but in the Quran, we believe the Quran is definitively from the Creator, from God, and God was the one that knows the universe and how it was created, and he's informed us about this particular aspect about human beings and about Adam al-Islam. And so therefore it's consistent for us to take what the creator says about the universe that he created if you if we believe the quran is from the creator that is uh, above a process of science which is inductive and has indefinite conclusions now saying that 
outside of human beings, there is no discussion within the Quran. So we don't believe necessarily, you know, there's nothing within Islam that says that uh, the earth is 6,000 years old. We don't believe that. We, there's nothing within the Quran that says about, uh, you know, animals did not evolve. Animals were created in the same form that they are. So there's nothing regards to that. Um, so therefore, you can have a person who believes in evolution as a Muslim, but he makes special exemption to Adam al-Islam, not based upon science, but based upon their belief in the scripture, which they may believe have rational, justified reasons for believing them. Okay. Uh, to be honest, I've never uh, uh, known that this was the case in terms of how Muslims view, view the emergence of man. But okay. And but I guess that you would like um, disqualify all the, the that man, uh, homo sapiens, came from uh, other... Uh, evolved primates yeah so we you know there is question marks regards to that i think from you know uh historically I, well historically, when i'm when i was growing up we had this picture of you know uh an ape-like creature who starts to stand more and more upright and then you've got these neanderthals and these you know uh, other hominid species in a line and this line goes up to the homo sapien which is us today and that was how I was taught evolution when I was a kid. And now what's happened is they say, oh, well, that's actually not how evolution works. Because I was thought that was a fact, yeah, that you had Neanderthals that came before Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens evolved from Neanderthals, who may have evolved from another, etc. Now they talk about the web of hominids, yeah, that there were different branches. So you had the Neanderthals as a separate species and the Homo sapiens as a separate species. And... The Homo sapiens did not evolve from the Neanderthals, uh, you know, but they, they they had divergence within that, and then you have the Denisovians as well. Um, so that so now they talk about this, and then recently people started to actually we are finding that Homo sapiens have you know who are you know outside of the African continent uh, have four you know percent also Neanderthal DNA. So all that suggests. Even if it's good science, I'm not saying it's bad science, but even if it's good science, all that suggests is is that the conclusion is never going to be definitive. Yeah. So for us as Muslims, we're saying, okay, we've got a statement within the Quran which we believe is definitive, and we believe we have good reasons to believe that it's from the Creator. We believe we have good reasons that a Creator exists. And therefore, if we believe in this, and we've got a definitive statement over a theory that is maybe well established but is indefinite in its conclusions then we would take the statement within the Quran uh, over a particular aspect within theory and you know it's not people like I said they get really um, some atheists anyway they get very upset by this approach and they're like oh you're science deniers and things like this but I think the problem is that they put science on such a pedestal that they over exaggerate its effect look I work within the pharmacy profession, yeah? We give out things like uh, aspirin, 75 milligrams. Aspirin, 75 milligrams is to thin out the blood. For decades and decades, there's been thousands upon thousands of research papers and meta-studies that looked at tens of thousands of patients that said that this is a beneficial treatment to stop, you know, heart disease and atherosclerosis and potential strokes and things like that. About, you know, tens of thousands. In a recent paper, where they did even more of a larger study, 
they actually found that the harms outweigh the benefits now. Yeah. So historic, you know, just up until like last year, it was considered the most thoroughly established research about aspirin and its benefits in, you know, uh, preventing strokes and things like this. Yeah. So now, but then suddenly then it becomes changed by another, uh, you know, data set. COVID-19 is another good example. How many studies have come? And it's not because there's a, you know, you know, science is evil. It's just the nature of science. It's the nature of the fact that we have a limited set of data. Based upon the limited set of data, we're trying to generalize a overall conclusion. And it's not always the case that we can general, or we can generalize based upon the data, but it's not always the case uh, that it will always be true. Uh, but, and I think this is an important point, when a person believes in what we call scientism, yeah, this idea that all explanations have a material origin, even when now the facts goes against them or the data and the evidence goes against them, it doesn't mean that they will reject it. And one good example of this is a concept called abiogenesis. I don't know if you heard of this, Elmo. Yeah, I, I sort of, but I'm not, uh, can you enlighten me? Yeah, on yeah. That? So abiogenesis is life from non life. Yeah. So the origin of life. So where does the origin of life come from? Now, every single materialist, yeah, even scientists, when they look at the issue of science, will say life came from non life. The original origin was non life. Yeah. What evidence do they have? No evidence. Yeah. Why do they assume it to be ab to be the only explanation? They don't say, you know, they may talk about, you know, there was a meteor that came from Mars and, you know, a, you know, it had germs in it and these bacteria came to the earth and then they evolved, etc., etc. But then you still have the question, where did those bacteria come from, you know, that were floating in space? So, in origin, they're saying, no, life ultimately came from non-life, abiogenesis, yeah, that's what they call it. And why do they accept that? Because it fits within the naturalistic explanation, i.e. that all phenomena can only be explained by the world around you, the materialistic world around you. Why, why do I say there's no evidence for it? Well, one, there is no evidence for it. And secondly, what do we know about life? We know life comes from life. And we don't have, you know, the data set of a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand. We have billions of evidences for this. All evidence that we've ever come across with regards to life is that it originated from something that was living, not something that was non-living and suddenly became a living organism. Uh, but that doesn't stop people now to say, ah, but, you know, we believe in abiogenesis or abiogenesis because that's the only possible explanation that we can have. And this is part of the problem. When we look at the issue of whether it's evolution, abiogenesis, by the way, I'm not saying that in the future people won't be able to produce life from lifelessness, yeah, and therefore that's a proof for God. I'm not saying that, but I'm just showing the thinking process. The current evidence says we don't have any evidence from life from lifelessness. The only evidence that we have is from life that comes from other things that are living, yeah. So that's what I'm saying because of this. But what they do when you start to say that the only way to determine truths is by looking at material explanations. It's like being trapped in a room and you're trapped in this room and you don't know anything outside of this room and you see tables and chairs and you ask yourself, ask yourself the question, where do these tables and chairs come from? 
And if you say that I'm only ever going to justify everything based upon in what's existent in this room, then he looks at the table and chairs, he looks at the walls and the floor, and he sees that the floor is made out of wood, and the tables and chairs are made out of wood, and then he will, he will in his internal logic, say, and he will be consistent based upon his assumptions, that the tables and chairs came from the floor. The floor is made out of wood, the tables and chairs are made out of wood, I'm not going to look at any explanation outside of the table, uh, outside of the room, therefore he comes to this conclusion. So in the same way, what you find is a lot of people, when they look at, uh, you know, the world and universe from a materialistic lens, it's like they're trapped in the world, yeah, or trapped in, in the material realm, and they're trying to explain everything from that. And so from that premise, they then create a, maybe even a consistent, a logically consistent argument, but the logical consistent argument is built upon the assumption, yeah. And until you start to break that assumption down or open up the, you know, you, you know, take away, you know, open that door to that room that you're trapped in and start to see actually there's a world outside or there's a possibility of an explanation that's outside of the room, you know, then you're always going to be looking at within the universe. Yeah, and yeah, it is. But um, I'm trying to wrap it around my my mind though. <laughs> but okay, okay. And um, in terms of, for example, because uh, you're a Muslim, right? And, um, you know, like, because for me, you know, I, I'm really into science. And um, I was also a young earth creationist, like, when I was in high school. And I was deep into this stuff, you know? Uh, like, six days, literal, all that stuff. Naturalistic phenomenon. But I, 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 uh, I came to some conclusions that uh, I might not have been... Uh, true to in in terms of scientific uh, studies but i see your point there that um science is an inductive process and there are gaps that we fill with hypotheses due to presuppositions right yeah okay and so um no what i was going to say is that the inductive pro it's like for example if i want to know what the boiling point of water is and so i do 10 experiments and i try and keep all the variables the same and I find after every ten, the ten experiments, I'll say, okay, both water from from these all these ten show that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And then I'll say, okay, my my theory is, yeah, or my conclusion is that all water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, so long as the room conditions are maintained, yeah, uh, one atmosphere, etc. So you, we make these generalizations based upon five observations, or even a thousand observations, yeah or a million observations, but we're still only limited because we've never sensed all of water. Yeah, So we can't make the conclusion that all water, that's why it's, a, it's an assumption that we can generalize future events from past experiences. Yeah, That's an assumption that we are doing within science. In the same way, we're also assuming causal relationships. Yeah, Something we can't prove within science, we have to use it. So if I take an experiment and I say, okay, I'm going to get a, uh, a cup of water and I'm going to get heat and I'm going to use the heat in order to boil the water. The assumption in that is the fire causes the boiling. Yeah. So it's something you have to assume prior to your experimentation. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a number of assumptions that you have to make in empiricism in order for the scientific method to work. Now, I love science as well, yeah, and I like the method, 
but I also am aware of these assumptions. Where the danger is, is when people start to make generalized, like not generalized, but they make science the only method to ab obtain truths. And that is problematic. Yeah, then you start to see, see assumptions that cannot be proven. You start to see a inconsistency in thinking where they cannot affirm free will, but at the same time they operate according to, you know, their lives that free will exists. You know, so there's a lot of problems or consciousness. Can you can it be explained through materialism or not, or abiogenesis that you know it's assumed to be true and there's no evidence? Then there's a lot of problems with regards to uh, using empiricism as the only method. Uh, so I like to use empiricism. I like to use evidence, but I don't see it as the only method. I see it as sitting under a rational method. Mm -hmm. But um, to be honest, like I think that um what you what you uh, uh where you come from here is that um man did not emerge from an evolutionary process from a biogenesis because of a revelation that and that re that and the doctrines that rely on this revelation right so okay so in in terms of that um in a way that you would have to qualify your revelation in order for for it to be an authority on okay so uh, can we talk more about that the only, yeah we can do uh, that's not a problem the only thing that i would say is that you we are in this process of discussing for example that guy on the island uh, i mentioned at the beginning and he looks at the universe and he thinks there's a he looks at the things around him he's a limited finite dependent and he, said, he asked the question, well, can limited finite dependent go on forever? And he says no. And the reason why he says no is because he says an infinite regress is an impossibility because it affirms either an actual infinite, i.e. an infinite sum of finite things, which leads to a mathematical contradiction or contradiction when it's applied to reality. Or, and also it leads to the problem that this event, if it is dependent upon an infinite number of events, we'll never get to this event because we have to traverse infinity. And a causal series that is infinite, which requires a prior cause, means that nothing within that causal series would exist. So all of these various arguments would dis discount, as an example, and there's other arguments for believing God, which is one of them, but this would discount an infinite regress. I limited things depend upon other limited things ad infinitum, whether in a cycle or whether in a linear chain, yeah? So therefore, we would need an independent, unlimited creator. So this guy on the island is now thinking, okay, how did I get here on this island? Ultimately, yeah, or in this life, if we want to talk about life, ultimately, it was an independent, unlimited creator who created us, yeah, I, a necessary being. So not limited and therefore dependent, but unlimited, therefore independent. So then you say, well, why was I created? Yeah, I still don't know why. Yeah, what's going to happen to me after I die? You know, and what you also find within human beings as well is this desire, this innate nature of wanting to worship, you know, wanting to reach out. I think even atheist anthropologists uh, and even atheists generally would acknowledge that human beings has have a desire uh, to want to worship. You know, all civilizations across all times and all cultures have had some form of deity or some sort of religious, you know, uh, you know, belief systems. Even the ones which were communist, like for example, communist Russia, they, you know, they would do acts that 
resembled religious acts, like they preserved the body of Lenin, and they would go and visit the body of Lenin, uh, which was enclosed in a glass case, and they would go around it out of respect. Now, we would say this is veneration, yeah? Uh, similarly, people, you know, they have these lucky charms, yeah? So, you know, they think some, you know, like at work today, somebody turned around and said, oh, thanks, you know, touch wood, you know, we've not had uh, COVID-19 here. And then she goes, I need to find wood to touch. I don't know if you heard of this saying, touch wood. You do that there. So in, in England, it's a big thing as well. So she goes, oh, touch wood that we have not. And then she had to look for something to touch. Now, she's not particularly religious herself, but it's that manifestation. So what we then say is, okay, if as a human being, I believe creator exists, and that ultimately, maybe the mechanism might not be necessarily known, but ultimately the creator created the universe and life, etc. whether that's through evolution or whatever process, ultimately there is within human beings an aspect that we have been created uh, with this desire to want to worship. So that's one thing regards uh, to this. So how do I fulfill this? How do I, I know a creator exists now because things are limited, finite, dependent, and they cannot coexist on its own. They require an independent creator. How do I now want to uh, sanctify this creator? So I can't communicate with the creator. I need some sort of communication from the creator. The second thing that a person would look at is thinks, hold on, how I want to be a moral, morally good person, yeah? You and I, isn't it, Elmo? We want to be morally good people, don't we? Yeah. So then the question, like I said at the beginning about the, the discussion problem of evil, acts in themselves don't tell us what's morally good and morally bad, yeah? So this desire to be morally good, yeah, this conscious... Uh, consciousness and this desire to undertake moral agency and have free will to do morally good acts, yeah, is something that we all want, but we can't determine it without determining our purpose in life. And so this is something, again, we say is innate within human beings, an innate desire to worship and innate desire to be morally good, and none of these things can be known until we anchor it upon what this creator and created us with these innate desires one from us and then therefore i would now start to look for revelation i would now start to say okay is there some sort of communication from god do i get communication from god or you know people are claiming to have communication from god okay how do i test that claim so then we start to test the various claims about you know those who say this book is from god or not and so this becomes the next step in the journey that we would look at I've not gone into the evidences for the Quran, I'm just saying this is a thought process, it's, you know, a logical progression in the thought process that a person should have. Uh, I see, I see where you're, where you're going, but um, uh, to then for me, like, uh, uh, hearing what you said, it seems that um, in, a, in, in, an, in an analytic philosophy, you start your, your investigation of the re reality of the universe uh, through the subjective experience of humanity itself, you know, and that that's where you would where you draw your conclusions for the innate disposition to worship God. Therefore, there's a communication from God, and therefore God exists, and you're able to know God's nature uh, th through the scripture and the the messenger. And then, because of the scripture, you're also drawing scientific. 
uh, conclusions to to the hi- historical evolution of mankind as well. Yeah, I would say slight amendments to that. So what I'm saying is that as a human being, with no, we, we just come, we would say we as a human being need to come to observe the universe without preconception. Yeah, so we're not preconceiving upon the observation of the universe. You know, obviously there are natural, innate, uh, conceptual tools that we have, like causality, like the idea that innately we believe in uh, free will and we have the ability to choose upon the actions that we perform. But we come across things within the universe without any preconceptions. So I'm not coming across the universe saying, God exists, how do I fit God into the universe? I'm saying, things exist, things that exist are contingent, and this is another argument, which are, means that they are possible beings. They could exist, they could not exist. They may exist in a different way to the way they exist now. So therefore, is the explanation of why they exist contained within themselves or external to themselves? Yeah. So I give this example, I think I gave this example to somebody else as well recently about a red triangle. Yeah. So I know from the fact that there is a red triangle that somebody's determined it to be red and the reason why is because it being red is a possibility from a number of possibilities yeah so it could be black blue green white another color it's not contained in the definition of being a triangle so not all triangles are red some triangles are black blue and if it loses color it doesn't stop being a triangle but if it loses the three sides it's no longer a triangle yeah so, therefore, when I look at the triangle and I see that they say a red triangle, I see red is a possible being a contingency, yeah, or I'm looking at a contingency, contingent thing, then I can say, okay, what determined it? It's not the de- definition of a triangle, so what determined it is outside of the triangle, yeah? In the same way, we look at the universe and we see that everything within the universe is a possible contingent being didn't have to exist, didn't have to exist in the way it does. The laws of nature could be other than the way it is. Now, is the explanation of why these laws exist contained within the nature of these things? Yeah, and we would say, no, they're not. So therefore, they must be contained outside of, the the explanation must be contained outside of nature. Yeah, I supernatural, if you want to use that word, or a non-naturalist explanation. And that's where we talk about a necessary being. A necessary being, why we use the word necessary, is because saying it's not contingent, it's not a possible being. It's not something that could exist, could not exist. It has to exist by virtue of its being. Yeah, it's necessary. And therefore, this necessary being doesn't require an explanation outside of itself. And therefore, like a three-sided triangle, to say, why does a triangle have three sides? Well, it doesn't have to have an explanation outside of itself because it's three sides is how we define a triangle. Yeah, it's not quite the same analogy, but I'm just giving an example of what, a ne- what we mean by necessary. So we're saying, therefore, it must be necessary. Necessary in this context would also mean independent, eternal. So there's an independent, eternal being. So that's what I was saying. So we just look at things in a rational, you know, normal way as a human being functions within life. We come to this conclusion. Then we're saying, okay... Am I just going to come to this conclusion that a necessary being exists and just get on with the rest of my life? And I said, no, because not just me, but human beings as a whole want to pursue moral act. But I can't work out moral act from my mind. I can't say a killing is right or wrong. Yeah, I can't even say eating meat is right or wrong. 
You know, some people say, oh, no, you can't eat meat. Some people say, fine, you eat meat. Yeah? There's arguments for, there's arguments against. It all depends upon your view on life and your purpose for life. And that purpose is going to be built upon what we see comes after life and where we came from in life. Yeah, so if I came from nothing and I die and I go to nothing and I see my life is about maximizing personal benefit, then I'm going to see that as my uh, purpose and therefore that's going to be my moral yardstick. But if we've already concluded that a creator exists, then the next question, okay, so what comes after life? Well, I can't work that answer out. It's not a scientific answer. Yeah. So we have to look at potential evidences from, from, from those who claim revelation, whether that's Christianity, whether that's various Hindu scriptures, whether that is Zoroastrianism, whether that is Islam, you know, any of these various method, you know, world views, we have to look into this, yeah, and we have to investigate. And also the other argument I was using is the fact that human beings across humanity for all time have always had this desire to worship. And we're saying that that desire, that innate desire to worship or sanctify is something inbuilt in human beings. It's not it cannot be explained by matter. Ultimate explanation exists outside of matter. I, the necessary being, brought this innate desire to worship. Yeah, and that worship would mean worship the necessary being. So how do I worship? How do I communicate? All of these things require me to look for a communication because I can't communicate with something outside of the universe. So I'm looking for something outside of the universe to communicate with me, yeah? And therefore, people have claimed that they've received various revelations, various religious figures and philosophers or, or prophets or whatever they want to use the word. Uh, so I'm going to look for these claims. Now I'm going to look for religious claims. I'm not going to look for non-religious claims because non-religious claims does not put this idea of God central in their worldview, like capitalism, or communism, yeah, and I've already established through the various arguments if people accept it or not, separate issue, but I've already established that there must be a creator. So now I'm looking for a claim that claims to be a communication from this creator. So capitalism, communism don't claim to be from a creator. So now, how do I find it? So then I've got to look at what yardstick I'm going to use. Now, one of the yardsticks that I will use, one of the rational filters I'm going to use, is the claim that this is from God does it fit with my rational conception of the creator as a necessary independent being beyond the universe, beyond limitations? If it doesn't fit within that rational conception, then what is being communicated is false. Yeah? That's why as a Muslim, I don't necessarily believe in, in Christianity because of the problem of the Trinity. Yeah? Uh, because I, I believe that that, con uh, you know, conflicts with this rational conception of this human being who comes with no preconceived biases, looks at the universe, comes to the conclusion that creator exists, and so therefore looks for communication. The communication, if somebody says that God, you know, is ten beings, then I would say, oh, there are ten gods, and ten necessary reasons. And there's a problem with that. Or if somebody says uh, God is a human being that lives on a cloud, I would say, oh, there's a problem with that, yeah, from a rational conceptual perspective. So I'm looking now for a communicate a revelation that fits within this rational conception. Then we find Quran and Islam and the, the claim about Islam being from God. And so I look in, I investigate it and I see that actually its conception of God is same with the rational conception that I come to. And also, so that now it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, it just means that it requires further investigation. Then I say, okay, what 
how do I determine whether this communication from this particular person, Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, is actually from the Creator or not? Yeah. So then I'm starting to look at that. So I've spoken a lot, and I don't want to speak too much. So I don't know if you want to interject. No, it's okay. Uh, I love you uh, listening to you, bro. And um, I, and then I want to ask like like one last question because we've been almost an hour now, and um, I did um because you've uh, learned so much from the that that from a there's then there's a necessary being that where uh are the existence of the un- the contingent universe depends on, and that he must have communicated to to the world right, and so. I want you to like uh, uh, explain to the listeners as to why the Quran is the right uh, message and um, what advice you would give them if they were interested in learning. So it's a, it's a massive topic talking about what the evidence is for the Quran or Islam. Yeah, uh, but generally, what I would say is this: is that from a, I'm just talking from a Muslim perspective, and people can investigate it afterwards if they want to as well. We say that every prophet or every person who claims to have communication from God needs to have a testable uh, evidence, a testable evidence, so something that they can test. Now that evidence that is from a creator, a necessary being, means that he has to bring something that no human being can produce, Yeah, has, has no naturalistic explanation for it. Yeah. So if somebody comes and he says, you know, I can fly, and he gets in a plane and he flies, well, that's not a... No, uh, non-naturalistic explanation. I can explain that within physical laws, yeah, and you're just utilizing physical laws in order to do that, you know. So I would discount that. So it has to be a non-naturalistic or beyond human productive capacity. What he brings as evidence. So we talk about how, you know, in the Quran, he mentioned about Jesus, Isa alayhisam, or Jesus, peace be upon him, how he was able to bring people back from the dead. So we say this is a non beyond human productive capacity, certainly for that time, to bring a person who was dead back to life. So therefore, the only possibility is that God gave Jesus that capability to do that. In the same way we talk about Moses and the staff that turned into a snake, and so an inanimate object became an animate object, in fact a snake, we say that's beyond human productive capacity and he was tested for regard to this claim as well according to the Quranic and I think also the biblical narrative now the problem with those tests uh, or those evidences is that we can only we it's a time and place specific so it's the test for the observation of that what we would term in Arabic which means inimitable act beyond human productive capacity that test was open to those people who were who were witnessing it and you could test it yeah so we can't use that now as evidence for us today so in the quran we believe that when the prophet muhammad peace be upon him came he brought down a book a quran and at the time of revelation of the quran the people were in you know um yani uh, they were they were highly expert uh, you know highly involved in forms of poetry and prose and song and you know uh, highly stylized rhythmical language yeah and so when the quran was revealed to these people who have very high knowledge in terms of arabic language it challenged them to produce three sentences like the quran yeah 
So he's saying that, look, if you don't believe it's within, so if you don't believe this is from the Creator, then it should be within the productive human capacity, yeah? And you can bring as many experts and as many people in order to test this claim, yeah? And so, you know, this is the evidence, one of the evidence that we use. Other evidences that we use is that within the Qur'an there are various prophecies which are specific, so they're not general and vague. There are also various aspects within the, the prophecies of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in the narrations, what we call hadith, yeah, which again, you know, uh, we see come to pass. For example, just one example of this was the prophecy about how the Bedouin Arabs will compete in building tall buildings. I don't know if you heard this, Elmo. The Bedouin Arabs, yeah. So yeah, that 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 the the the, the, the tallest buildings will, will have been actually in Saudi Arabia, right? Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, in Qatar as well. Yeah, and you know it was interesting because some people say, oh yeah, yeah, but Muslims are just trying to do this self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, but the point being is that uh, the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him said these are the bare naked Arabs. Yeah, it means that they're uneducated, illiterate. Yeah, Arabs who have, you know, little education and knowledge and they start competing in tall buildings. And we know that the people, the leaderships of these countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar and UAE and things like that, they are from the Bedouin tribe. So it's not something you aspire to. You don't want to be considered the, the ignorant Arab, yeah, who compete on over building tall buildings, yeah. So you'd want to stay away from that particular type of prophecy, you know, or being ascribed to, uh, to yourself about that. So it's a criticism of these people who do that and it's causing... So that is one example. But there's many other examples. But the main aspect is in this literary miracle of the Qur'an. That the Qur'an is beyond human productive capacity. That's a massive topic because that goes into a discussion about literature and what it means uh, in it to produce literary excellent lang writings within the Arabic language. It's, it's a science in Islam. It's oh, not even Islam, amongst the Arabs. So even before Islam. It's called Ilm al-Balagha, which means the science of rhetoric. And it's subdivided into three further subfields uh, related to uh, predicate or uh, meaning, uh, style, so like uh, the forms of literal, metaphorical, metonym, uh, forms of speech, and also embellishment of words, which is also known as Ilm al-Badi. So you have the this aspect, then you have also the aspect which is related to the genre the musicality of the language, yeah? And so what, what the Muslim claim is, or what the Qur'anic claim is, is that if the Qur'an could be, uh, uh, was, was produced by human beings, then you could produce something equivalent to it by matching its genre, and also matching, not bettering, just matching its balaga, its uh, rhetoric, yeah, its expression of meaning. And you know, there are over 6,000 uh, verses in the Qur'an. And so it's not like a small book, it's quite a big book. And so every single verse, if you could find even one potential change in that word, or even the grammatical indicator, to change the grammatical indication of a particular noun, as an example, if you could do that, then you'd render the whole Qur'an as being from human beings. Yeah, if you could change it, and either make it equivalent or demonstrate its weakness, yeah, in its language. It's like, for example, me and you, Elmo, I'm speaking to you, yeah, and as a speech, you know, isn't it, and I know, 
that the way we speak and the way we write is completely different. Yeah? So, so when I speak, if I was to write down how I speak, it would be full of grammatical errors. Yeah? So it's true, isn't it? Because we make that. We have to go and revise and re-edit if we're even any written speech. Now, when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is giving this claim that this Qur'an, to the Arabs who are the best in the Arabic language, giving this claim that this is from God, he was responding to events and reciting verses as they were being revealed to these events. Yeah. So maybe some people asking him questions and he was reciting verses. Maybe he was being accused of something, you know, in a hostile environment and he's, re and he's receiving what we believe is revelation. He's reciting verses. And the verses that he's reciting ad hoc, you know, as it came to him, were in the best form of speech such that there was no ability to, and once it's being said to non-Muslims, to people who maybe even, you know, antagonistic to his message, there's no way of revising it. If he's made a mistake, the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him made a mistake, there's no way of revising it. His claim would have been, uh, you know, destroyed there and then. They say, oh look, you know, you've made a grammatical error, you shouldn't have said that there, yeah? But the fact that they couldn't do this, and then they could go back to the Qur'an and revise it and look into it and try to look at the verses and try to change it or produce their own verses similar to it. And they still couldn't do that. What we believe is, an, is a testable way of understanding uh, how to affirm the Qur'an. Now, people, that's very brief. That's very, you know, I've just gone over it really, really quickly and maybe spoke too long about it, but still it's a very, very quick uh, overview in regards to it. Uh, but what maybe the take-home message is this, is that as Muslims, we don't accept claims on its own. We have to test the veracity of the claim. Yeah. So we don't say that whether people agree with the assessment that the Quran is a miracle or not is a, is a separate, is a secondary point. The main point is the fact that we as Muslims believe we need to have a testable way to affirm a claim to revelation. Yeah. And that testable way can be something that can be judged by the mind. Yeah, and um, I I I, I want to add one last question, you know, because um, uh, that that was really uh, interesting what you, you just uh, told me about um, Islam and the Quran, and um, I want to ask because you're a devout Muslim and that uh, um, you've uh, lived your life mostly as a as a Muslim and serving uh, Allah, um, uh, in what way has it or the the Islamic experience of worshiping God help you, or or what kind of experience is it to to be in 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 eternal uh, submission to God? So it's a good question, and obviously uh, I live within an environment which doesn't necessarily reflect all of the values that you know I believe in. So you know, I, you know, um, you know, you'll see restaurants that will sell alcohol, you'll put the TV on and there'll be maybe ideas and concepts that are not necessarily in accordance to it. But I think ultimately what you do is you strive as best as possible in order to try to fulfill what you believe that the, you know your, your creators commanded you to do. And what it does is that it takes away responding to the environment based upon you know, uh, sort of a sign stimuli response. I don't know if you heard of this concept, sign stimuli response. It's like in animals, what they do is they re they just respond to the environment. 
Yeah. But rather you're responding to an idea. Yeah. So, you know, if I come across somebody and I don't like him, yeah, he's rude to me and, you know, I'm, uh, uh, he's rude to me and I need to help him out. Yeah. How do I respond? Do I respond because he was rude to me? I say forget him. Or do I respond higher at a high level value system? And is that value system that I believe that I'm responding to, is it built upon a rational, justified belief set? Yeah. And that's what it means to follow what I believe it means to follow Islam because that. And the other aspect of this is that it gives uh, what we call sakina, tranquility. And what we mean by that is that whether you're Muslim or not, whether you're theist or atheist, you're going to face problems in your life. Yeah, you're going to face difficulties, you're going to face ups and downs, you're going to have to face moral choices to make, difficult choices, deaths, illness, you know, destruction. Where is your psychological anchors that things, you know, the universe is not a bad place to be, that life and the difficulties that you face, there's going to be an ultimate justice for this. There's an ultimate mercy for all of this. So, with regards to responding according to what, you know, Islam says, about the difficulties that we face, then we gain that level of tranquility to say, actually, you know what, we may be facing a difficulty now, but in the long term, uh, you know, what we believe in after this life, there is a greater good for us to face these difficulties. And then that gives us a very, you know, what's the word? It gives us a, you know, a stability to carry on even in the difficulties that we face. And it's sometimes the stability that we don't necessarily see, you know, in a secular world. That's why, you know, like I said, I work in, you know, in the pharmacy profession. And the guess what the most prescribed drug is, Elmo? What? Go on, guess. What is? Guess what's the most prescribed medicine that we give out? Aspirin. No. Aspirin. Not aspirin. Aspirin is quite, is quite high. Antidepressant. What is it? Antidepressant. Okay. There's a big, massive yeah. problem with depression. Now, I know the science behind depression, so I know the two types, reactive and uh, non-reactive depression. There are some problems because of depression, which is biological. But a lot of people suffer from mild to moderate depression, which is reactive. Reactive basically means there are events in their life that find difficult to cope with. Yeah. And this is what I think belief systems give people. Yeah, I certainly a belief system that's built upon a spiritual basis because it gives a person the view that actually this world is not it. Yeah, if I've not made it in this world and I live a you know a rubbishy lifestyle, that's not it. You know, there is a bigger universe or beyond this universe, there's bigger horizons out there, and that so long as even if I don't achieve everything that I wanted to achieve in this life. So long as I'd lived a good life according to what my belief and my scripture says, then God willing, I will be rewarded for that. Yeah, and there will be an eternal life regardless of this. And that gives, uh, like I said, a stability and a foundation to a human being, I think. So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in, guys. This is your host, Elmo Ador Jr. And thank you for listening in. And please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please, please follow this. Please. Thanks. It takes a lot of ingredients to fix or build a car. Like cooking, but without the frozen dinner easy way out. 
eBay Motors has 122 million parts. It's always the right fitment, so you can follow any recipe to a T. Whether it's a vintage Italian coupe that's classic like grandma's meatballs or a German luxury car that's as complicated as Oma's Rouladen, to cook up something great in the garage, use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Holidays are here, and so is fashionable fitness. Gift yourself a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 3 5G, a phone that folds in half to literally stand on its own. Pair it with the Galaxy Watch 4 for ultimate wellness and wow factor. Check health stats, flex personal records. Over 90 activities can be tracked, like biking, swimming, golfing, and more. Invest in yourself with tech made to crush goals. Holidays open up with Galaxy. Shop it all at Samsung.com. 5G connection and availability may vary. Check with Carrier. Products sold separately.